It's often a good way to start, start with something that pisses you off. It was working through the pandemic and dealing with... Just on his first day, people don't forget things like that. Blood sticks in the memory. Wind Chambers. The I don't know where that came from. <laughs> We've got some good mugs at work, but not like world's best dad, I don't think. That's a corker. There's something about universities and that's kind of... The administrator. Bad. Chambers says to say you're needed in the medical room at four o'clock, okay? And then, after a pause, came Hall's muted reply. I was on the pet food aisle. I still get, like, a shiver of horror every time I walk down a pet food aisle in a supermarket. I still feel the urge to bring the product to the front. A gruesome place indeed. Hello and welcome to the Fictional Podcast with me, Richard Lee. This autumn series of podcasts began with M. John Harrison, who's ruled out a late swerve into the theatre. It's not there for you to put on, like, clothes and reenact. That's not my purpose in writing. Then we heard from Irena Carper, who introduced us to some of her mildest fans. And they're listening, and they're drinking more and more, and then they start slamming like crazy, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, such a conversion. And then they come to Over me... Over the next few weeks, like... we'll be welcoming Shauna McKay and Catriona Bolt. But this week, we're consulting with Sean Patrick Burney and his short story, The Medical Room. When he joined us down the line from Hove, he started by reading from the opening. Lowe's first day on the job, he cut his hand, the fleshy bit between his thumb and index finger. A cut like a paper cut, though he hadn't handled any paper. It wouldn't stop bleeding, so Hall, a chipper guy in his mid to late thirties, who had been tasked with the job of training him up, went and got a first aid kit from the back office. Lowe was embarrassed, bleeding everywhere, on his first day. People don't forget things like that. Blood sticks in the memory. Wynne Chambers, the office manager within whose sphere of responsibility lay the domain of office safety, noticed that the first aid kit had been taken off the shelf. He reminded Hall to fill out an incident form. Or should it be a near-miss form? Could it have been something else? Might something worse have happened? Hall rolled his eyes and waved Chambers away. Such a stickler, he said, once Chambers had gone. Total job's worth. It was as Hall had waved Chambers away that Lowe noticed Hall's hand, two fingers of which were wrapped in a bandage. He hadn't noticed the bandage that morning, but he thought it better not to be nosy. He was keen to make a good impression. It was his first day. His second day on the job, Lowe tripped on the cable of an electric heater someone had left trailing over the floor, landing hard on his knee. Hall got a blue Velcro wrap and an ice pack from the fridge in the back office, and Chambers, passing them in the corridor, reminded Hall to complete one of the near-miss forms once he had a moment. Low might, for example, have cracked his head open in one of the radiators, and you never knew of head injuries. Even seemingly minor blows could turn deadly. You could bang your head and then, hours later, start to throw up, then die. How's your hand? Low asked as Hall hunched over the form to break the silence. Low often found such silences anxiety-inducing. It looked tricky writing with the bandage. Three of Hall's fingers were now wrapped, though Low was certain that the day before it had only been two. Immediately, he regretted being nosy. What business was it of his? But fortunately, Hall didn't seem to mind. Oh, this, he said. It's nothing. Paper cut. Then he gestured down at the form. Chambers insists on paper. He likes to file them all the way, though he reads them. No one. Keeps them in a job, I guess. 
Later that day, one of the administrators or one of the admin interns came over to Hall's cubicle, the cubicle beside Lowe's, and whispered something in his ear. Hall whispered back. Lowe tried not to eavesdrop, but he had very good hearing. What he heard was this from the administrator. Chambers says to say you're needed in the medical room at four o'clock, okay? And then, after a pause, came Hall's muted reply, okay? Lowe watched the administrator walk away. Something in the man's voice had caught his attention. Something bothered him. He couldn't work out why the guy seemed so familiar. Just before he turned the corner at the end of the corridor, the administrator glanced back. For less than a second, he and Lowe stared at one another, and Lowe knew that the administrator had recognised him too. The administrator, or the admin intern, whatever he was, looked surprised, almost wounded. And to Lowe it seemed as if that wounded surprise hung in the air long after he had rounded the corner. Lowe stared down the length of the corridor, trying to think. After that brief exchange with the administrator, or the admin intern, Hall's mood wasn't quite so chipper. He left Lowe to his own devices for most of the afternoon. Even though Lowe still lacked any idea of what it was he was supposed to do, and didn't really have any devices of his own. Lowe moved a few things around on his desk, closed one application and opened another. The mouse the cursor around the screen. Bernie's first collection of short stories, I Would Haunt You If I Could, was published by Undertow in 2021. But we began by finding out how he came up with a story like The Medical Room. I was quite depressed and pissed off with work. (laughs) (laughs) As simple as that. Yeah, it's often a good way to start, start with something that pisses you off. It was working through the pandemic and dealing with just a lot of what felt like nonsense. (laughs) And I think it connected with the idea of bullshit jobs from David Graeber. Yeah. I'm a technical demonstrator on photography programs at a university and it's not a bullshit job, but there is always, you know, a certain amount of bullshit that creeps in sometimes more and more. I got absolutely sick of it. I was also having to use the first aid room, which is a really neglected, tiny, little, cold, horrible room, which felt like some kind of joke, it being the first aid room. But I was having to use it for, like, short breaks and naps and things, basically. I was diagnosed with ME December last year, although I've had it for just over two years, I think. Wow. So it was a lot of uh, frustration and fury and (laughs) depression. I don't know, it made me laugh, I think. I wasn't sure it would make anyone else laugh, but you just follow these things and see where they go. So you took your frustrations and you put them in that nasty grey little box and turned it into fiction? Yeah. I suppose it's one way of dealing with it. (laughs) (laughs) I was just sort of doing it for my own amusement, I guess. I mean, I was struggling with writing a lot at that period. It's always nice to have something on the go. Well, not least because you've just been diagnosed with CFS. How does that affect your writing? It got really, really difficult. I mean, I got very, very depressed with it. That got really, really difficult. And that is really, really bad for writing. I'm in quite a good place with it now. I'm much, much better at dealing with it. And writing is something I can still do. ME slash chronic fatigue syndrome. It may or may not be long COVID in my case. I have no idea. I I never knowingly had COVID. I suppose the main feature of it is what gets called post-exertional malaise. Sometimes really profound fatigue after any kind of exertion. And that exertion might be exercise or it might be cooking or staring at screens for too long. Or, you know, it, it can be anything. It fluctuates a lot. So, for example, last year I thought it might have cleared up completely. I was sort of jogging again very, very slowly, but things like that were going quite well. 
then both my girlfriend and I got either COVID or one of the nasty viruses that were going around last year. It was very, very strange. She felt really, really strange. And it got a lot worse then. Although I got quite a horrible short story out of that as well. Um, <laughs> so, you know, anything that provokes a stress response basically can really knock you out. It might be really minor and it might be really, really major. And I think I'm doing quite well now in that I just, I can't afford to be stressed by things. So it's adopting a Zen attitude towards stuff and sort of seeing how that works out. Yeah. Most of the things that are stressing me out just don't really matter. You know, like work. I went for a period where I just got full of anger and cynicism and I was really, really burnt out, basically. And I just didn't care and couldn't care. And it was really, really hard to do the job in that state. And now it's not like I don't care. It's just that I care, but whatever. <laughs> People who follow us on Twitter might have seen your setup for your writing desk, which is a fairly relaxing one, if I can put it that way. I guess writing is one of the things that you might be able to continue doing to some extent. Yeah. One of the really difficult periods in January last year was I couldn't read. And that just felt like the final thing that was being taken away. But I know that those episodes kind of passed. But yeah, writing is something I can sort of fit around. I sort of write in usually relatively short bursts and a load of different devices. I write on my phone quite a lot. So I can fit it around things quite well. But it's still work, isn't it? It's still something that will tire you out. Yeah. Although it doesn't seem to as much. Like, reading can tire me out. Writing doesn't tend to, if I get into it, I suppose. Because there's this funny thing about writers. They kind of like to pretend that they've never actually done a day's work, that they've always been sitting around carving out their diamantine prose. There's not much actual chat about work that most writers must do to support themselves, or indeed actual work in the stories. I suppose on the one hand, people often aren't interested in talking about work because it's boring and no one wants to do it. <laughs> but also, I suppose a lot of very successful writers don't have a day job. A tiny minority, though. A tiny minority, but I guess that tiny minority is quite well represented, perhaps. But it's not as if we don't spend a lot of our lives working. It's a worthwhile subject to explore. Yeah, with the chronic fatigue, it became a really, really difficult thing because there was a lot of anxiety over whether I would be able to continue working. I was taking lots of time off, which I wasn't you know, used to doing. And there's all these slightly impersonal bureaucratic mechanisms that organisations use to deal with it. They have a disciplinary aspect. It was quite easy to become kind of paranoid about that sort of thing. It feels like you've done something wrong. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, I didn't really know what it was. Communicating what it was was tricky and I think any invisible condition has that element to it. Work became a particularly fraught thing so I guess that's what the medical room came out of. It's tempting to suggest that some of your office mechanics which are appalling they're drawn from life. Yeah as I say I work for a university which is a large and dysfunctional bureaucracy with good bits attached to it in certain places. Do they do slogans? Open, responsive, agile? Students are at the heart of everything we do. <laughs> My girlfriend works for an academic publisher and they have research as our North Star. <laughs> what about the mugs? I don't know where that came from. <laughs> We've got some good mugs at work, but not like world's best dad, I don't think. That's a corker. There's something about universities and they're kind of about, I don't know, 15 years behind the tech sector in terms of how they want to operate. You know, they want to be agile or what have you. And they're not. They shouldn't be, really, in, in certain respects. It's not something to emulate. It's how that bullshit to use that word kind of cascades through the culture i think there's sort of memories of like going to job centers as well which also have a really hideous disciplinary aspect but yeah that and the anxieties around being disabled effectively at work 
and trying to make something kind of funny out of it, I suppose. Lowe's another of the kind of passive young men from your collection. I would haunt you if I could. Men who seem baffled and buffeted by the world around them. Men who things happen to. Is that kind of how it feels at the beginning of the 21st century? I guess it's how it's felt to me a lot. I don't think anyone really knows what they're doing. Some people are just better at concealing that. That kind of lostness or disorientation. I don't know how it would resonate with the 21st century as such at large. Certainly in terms of my own personal experiences, it's quite pronounced. I'm trying to write more active characters, but I don't think I'm going to write action heroes. <laughs> Unless someone offers me loads of money to do it, in which case, yeah. Nice to know your principles are right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is that as human society becomes more powerful in terms of our technological know-how, our ability to shape the world... Our lives feel ever more as if they're shaped by forces beyond our control. You know, austerity, populism, the gig economy, the climate crisis. So is there something about living now that makes us feel that way? Yeah, I think so. Unseen forces beyond our control. Capital, money, how power works at every level of existence. The difference with now is that we are saturated in information. You know, there's a kind of signal overload, which is often disorienting itself. But I'm sure that sense of being at the mercy of obscure forces, and sometimes very conspicuous forces as well, probably holds true for most points in history. I'm thinking of the peasant in a Hampshire village in the 14th century, whose life was basically determined by the priest and the lord. There wasn't much choice, there wasn't much freedom, but at least you could see the bugger. (laughs) You could look him in the eye and say, that's the bastard that is making me do this. Yeah. We live in an age in which, like, tycoons have fans, which is really peculiar. For anyone who's spent too much time on Twitter, having the website's most conspicuous addict purchase it and really wreck it in terms of something that is useful and interesting and fun sometimes, as well as awful in all sorts of ways. Having him take it over, you know, such a dick. (laughs) I don't know, there's no mystique. I suppose if there's more distance, there's more mystique. It's just unsettling in all sorts of ways. Yeah, it's horrible. (laughs) There's a moment in the story of dissociation when Hall tells Lowe he's smashing it and a voice in his head tells Lowe to smile, which reminded me of something similar which happens to the narrator in Out of the Blue who feels displaced from myself when his dad turns up or... Danny in Hand Me Down, whose laughter becomes a stranger laughing. And then she says she was used to that kind of dissociation. Again, are those moments of disconnection a reflection of the disconnections of living now? I don't particularly think of it in those terms. I suppose they're just things that have interested me or that I have felt or that have just emerged while writing. Because so much of writing comes out of the writing rather than any kind of experience. I'm interested in alienation, in the ways you can be alienated from yourself work is one form of that you're not in control of your time you're not necessarily invested in the output of your labor you're doing it for someone else for reasons beyond your control unless you're lucky I suppose years ago I worked at Sainsbury's before I went to university I was on the pet food aisle I still get like a shiver of horror every time I walk down a pet food aisle in a supermarket I still feel the urge to bring the products to the front So we had to do this thing, which was like dressing the aisle, it was called, where everything was brought to the front. So the shelves looked full. So you had this sense of lovely plenitude as you walked down (laughs) down the supermarket. Even if there was just one thing and nothing behind it, we had to do that. 
spent ages doing it. It's the most pointless, stupid, irrational thing. Although I guess from the point of view of returning value to shareholders, there was a point to it. I remember one time my manager praising me for it. I remember briefly being pleased because I was being praised. And then this this horror kicking in almost immediately at, at the fact that I'm <laughs> pleased for that. It's another touchstone in your work. The unsaid. Nobody ever tells Lo what to do, what's really going on. He just has to kind of yeah. work it out. Yeah, he gets left to, to his own devices. It's a bit like what happens in Holes when the narrator thinks that if he hadn't told his girlfriend about his rash, maybe it would have gone away because it hadn't been said. Or Annie being on the cusp of finding out about the narrator's dad and out of the blue. The idea that there's this moment of saying or not saying and you're in a different state after it's been done. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in that whole question of the sayable, what can be spoken, what can't be spoken. It's a huge theme in horror fiction, which is a real interest of mine. And lots of my work is either horror or what I think of as kind of horror-informed. Obviously, it's a huge theme more broadly as well across the culture. The horror in the medical room is a kind of social horror, workplace horror. That sense of being lost and not knowing what to do and being assessed on obscure criteria is a part of it. Obscure criteria that are never explained, never made explicit. Yeah, that's one way power operates. If its terms are made clear, it's not necessarily as effective. You say you're a fan of horror to a certain extent, or that's a genre that you're interested in. If you were shelving the medical room in a bookshop, where would it sit? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it could sit in a horror context quite well. It's relatively comic. I think it's not conspicuously... I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's not conspicuously anti-realist or speculative. It's all things that could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, awfully so. Was that a branching out for you or a kind of a development or just one of the things you've been doing all along? I think it's always there. In terms of horror fiction and work, one of the really great writers is Thomas Ligotti. Books like um, My Work Is Not Yet Done, I would be very happy if it would sit alongside his work. To be brutally commercial about it, Amazon lists I Would Haunt You as literary short stories slash horror and Undertow publishing in the weird fiction and horror genre. Is that kind of where you feel at home? That's where I found a home for a lot of my stuff and I think it works with a lot of it and I think there's a lot of really, really interesting work being done there by Undertow especially. In terms of the broader context of science fiction, fantasy and horror, I don't think these days that the divisions are as prominent as they once were, perhaps. I mean, I just want to write stories and want to get people to read them without having to annoy them too much into doing so. Whether it's a genre publication or whether it's a literary publication, I don't really mind. I got quite anxious when people started calling it literary horror because it sounds like, do you know that phrase, elevated horror? Quiet horror is another one. I hear that and I just want to write a real unquiet horror in response. <laughs> a loud one. I mean, there's a danger with like literary horror or elevated horror. With what it actually means is tasteful horror. Bad taste and trash culture and the lowbrow is really, really important to horror as a tradition. It comes from the pulps. It's a form of popular entertainment. It's not quite respectable. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be a bit less respectable than that. Yeah, I just wish people would stop respecting me so much. (laughs) But when you sit down to write, you don't put a genre hat on. Oh, this is horror, or this is literary fiction. You just write a story. One of my main experiences of writing is not writing. 
so when I can write, I do. I mean, there's a few times where I've deliberately sat down to write a particular type of horror story. Like, Hand Me Down is very much a riff on things like The Ring, circulating curses, and also sort of how creeped out I was by a friend's baby monitor. They're creepy. They really are. It made the kids' eyes kind of glow. That's horrible. <laughs> I sit down to write things like that and sometimes skew things a bit. Like, I really, really like vampire stories, but I've not yet managed to write a vampire story, although I've tried to and they've just become something else. I've always been interested in pain and the body in horror. Dracula, he's very sensitive to light and he has to sleep a lot. It rings a bell, does it? It rings a bell, yeah. You were saying that sometimes somebody comes along and you just got to write it. You start with like a, I don't know, like a rumour or a little bit of something and then you just keep pulling at it. That's one of the things that's interesting about writing is you never really write what you mean to write. Very, very rarely a whole story has come to me. And it's always very, very nice and it feels kind of magical and you feel like you've kind of made a breakthrough with writing and it's going to be like this forever and then the next time it isn't at all and you're just pulling at things and messing around and playing with them. Horror's always interested me. It's about power in so many ways. I find it really, really interesting in that context in terms of contemporary life <laughs> and the, the forces we have to deal with and that flow through us as well. And we'll keep charting those forces right here. That was Sean Patrick Burney. You can attend The Medical Room along with brand new stories from M. John Harrison, Irena Carper, Shauna McKay and Katriona Bolt at fictionable.world. Search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-ready stethoscope. Hit subscribe in the menu on the right-hand side and you'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics for £20. You'll also get access to our archive of short fiction with stories from writers including Evie Wilde, Michael Doncor, Amy Sackville and Sabah Khan. We always love hearing what you make of our podcast, our blogs and, naturally, our stories. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter or take a trip back to the 1990s and send us an email on info at fictionable.world. If you want to get down with the kids... Spark up your smartphone, record a voice note and zap it across to the same address. You might end up on a forthcoming edition of the Fictionable Podcast. Next week, we'll be welcoming Shauna McKay, who's trying to work out what exactly is going on. Well, it's something to do with words. The words are the magical ingredient. <laughs> Sound like a witch now. But... <laughs> She'll anyway. be giving us some of the magic words from her story, matching up the pattern of the join as well. With thanks to Sean Patrick Burney, that's all for this time. So from me, Richard Lee, and from all of us here at Fictionable Towers, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.